My name is Joe. I'm associate minister here at Real Life, and uh, I'm excited to be sharing with you today. I don't have props uh, this Sunday, so um, last time I spoke, it was quite the illustration. But uh, so we are going to get into this series, uh, Life in Babylon, and. Um, this is a conversation we've been having at Real Life uh, for a number of weeks as we've been exploring this idea of what does it look like to be faithful citizens of God's kingdom in the midst of, of uh, a Babylon of sorts. And if you're new with us and uh, you're not familiar with these terms, let, let me just kind of uh, recap a little bit about what this means when we say life in Babylon. What are we talking about? Um, and really what it comes from is uh, from the exile when uh, uh, Babylon came in and wiped out Jerusalem uh, and took captives back to Babylon. And, uh, and so we have these stories in the scriptures about what happened, uh, prophets that talked about this, and um, what it is, what Babylon is, and when we talk about life in Babylon, uh, Babylon serves as an archetype of a sociological evil. Is, is how the Jews viewed it. Babylon is an archetype of a sociological kind of evil that exists. Um, during what's called Second Temple Judaism, so we're going to get a little nerdy this morning uh, to help us understand, Second Temple Judaism, which is a time period between roughly the 580s to 70 AD when, when Rome sacked Jerusalem for the final time. During that time period, around the 580s BC and 70 AD, this time period was known as Second Temple Judaism. Um, and it's because the temple was rebuilt for the second time. Solomon built the first temple. The uh, Babylonians came in and destroyed that. And then uh, the Persians allowed them to go back home and rebuild their temple. And so from that point on, they saw this new temple, that um, the second temple that they had. Uh, they looked back and they reflected back on their time in exile. And lots of like writing took place during this second temple Judaism. A lot of writings that influenced um, uh, uh, the Jewish people even during the time of Jesus and how they looked back on the events that took place in exile, not simply as a history that they experienced, but a reality that they must deal with currently. So it wasn't just something like, like the exile in Babylon wasn't something they looked back and went, oh yeah, I remember that happened. They actually started onboarding what that meant into what they're experiencing currently. And so when we get into like the New Testament, they take a lot of these ideas of Babylon and they saw themselves as exiles of sorts living in a current Babylon. Now, they weren't exiles. They were living in Jerusalem, but there, there was an occupation. At, at, at the Romans occupied the land, and so they saw themselves as not truly possessing their own land. Um, and so they, they, they used words like Babylon to reference 
reference this kind of um, um, evil that existed over them that, that still had power, and they were trying to live faithfully what God was calling them to, um, uh, awaiting the day that God would send a deliverer, a Messiah, someone, a new king that would actually overthrow the kingdom that existed, the, the Roman Empire in Jesus' day, and establish uh, the Jewish nation and the, and the people back to their rightful place in Jerusalem. And so this was the hope, this was the expectation. And as long as they were in uh, um, a, a conquered people, uh, they, they saw themselves as exiles. And so as the New Testament church began to onboard this reality, uh, so we too also reflect on these ideas as, as we are people trying to live faithfully the way of Jesus in our world today, uh, but also knowing that um, there is a, a, a Babylon of sorts of a, of a society that we live in that is, that is against and in opposition to the, to the ways of, of, of Christ and his kingdom. And so we uh, use the same terminology, and so we're we're looking back on these stories and asking ourselves the questions, what does it look like for us to be faithful followers of Jesus in the midst of the Babylon we live in? Right? And so this is, this is what we've been journeying through. And, uh, and we're going to be looking at um, one specific chapter this morning. We're going to deep dive into this chapter. Um, and we're going to look at it from three angles. We're going to talk about this topic from three angles. Uh, uh, the first angle is this. Uh, there's a new boss in town. The second angle is uh, when would you give up? And the third one is the church living in Babylon. So we're going to talk about the new boss in town. When would you give up? and a church living in Babylon. And this is how we're gonna move through this chapter. Now, you gotta help me this morning in this chapter because the chapter we're gonna talk about is one of those famous chapters that you find in kids' books and stories that you, you, you tell about this guy named Daniel and he found himself in a den of lions and he survived the den of lions. And so we all have this, like if you grew up in church, this is a story that you know, you've been told it. It's a lot, it kind of falls in that camp of like all these nice little stories of like Jonah and the fish and Daniel and the lion's den. And, uh, and so um, it's going to be hard because we have assumptions of what we think this chapter is about. And I was like, well, it's about Daniel surviving a lion's den, Joe. And I'm going to argue that there's much more under the surface happening than that, that, that last quarter of the chapter where you get the lion's den. And so we're actually going to unpack this, but you got to do your best. You can't jump to assumptions. You can't get too far ahead as we talk about this. And all the ideas you think of what you know of what this chapter is about, hopefully uh, I can bring some new light and shed some new information on it to enrich our ability to remember this story and what it means. And so we're going to look at Daniel chapter chapter 6. And I could read the entire chapter for you, but I'm going to trust that you can go do that on your own, um, the entire chapter. So, so go home today, reread it. We're going to do a flyover of the chapter, and I'm going to pull out some certain points in the chapter that I think are worth noting. Uh, and then we're going to, as we fly over the chapter, we're going to come back and we're going to wrap it all together of what, what this means for us. So let's talk about a new boss in town. Daniel chapter 6 begins with a new king on the throne. Now, when we talk about Daniel, oftentimes we, and, and, and really this whole time period, our minds think of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, the king, right? The, that guy that did the, the, the friends in the, um, in the fire. Um, we think of the whole thing being about that. But the reality is, is that at the beginning of chapter 6, there's a new king and a new 
kingdom. It actually uh, starts at the end of chapter five. Um, The Persians had taken over. And Daniel tells us that there's a new king that had conquered Babylon, uh, and his name is uh, Darius the Mede. Now, um, for the nerds in the room, uh, if you you, uh, study this a little bit more, you actually find out there is no historical figure called Darius the Mede. Nowhere. There's a lot of history about the Persians. There is no uh, Darius the Mede. There was a Darius that came on much later, um, right before Xerxes, the famous Xerxes and Artaxerxes that you get uh, in Esther, but uh, there is no Darius the Mede that exists. So the question is, is what is Dan- why does Daniel tell us that this king's name was Darius the Mede? And there's a few prevailing thoughts about this. Um, the mo- the, I think the most compelling one is this. Daniel... Uh, 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 calls Cyrus the Great, who was the actual conqueror, uh, the, the Persian king who conquered Babylon, his name was Cyrus the Great. And that's well attested in history. So why does Daniel call Cyrus Darius? And um, the prevailing thought is this, that, that uh, most kings got new names when they conquered. They got different kinds of names. Uh, for instance, Octavian in the Roman Empire. Do we know who Octavian is? Uh, Most do not, but if I were to say Caesar Augustus, we'd go, oh, I've heard that name. Well, Augustus was the name that uh, was given to Octavian when he um, uh, uh, unified the Roman Empire and he he came back into Rome and they changed his name from uh, Octavian to Augustus, Caesar Augustus. And so this was normal in in this time period. And so the prevailing thought is that that Daniel's doing the same thing, but the, the, the key indicator here is calling him the Mede. Why does he say the Mede? Well, the Medes were a people group that lived uh, alongside the Persian Empire. And Cyrus the Great, uh, when he took to power, he actually married into, uh, he took a Median wife. And so he became the uh, king of the Persians and the king of the Medes. And what's interesting is that Jeremiah prophesied that the, the Babylonian Empire would be conquered by the Medes. And so this was Daniel's way of saying, is, is, is talking about the fulfillment of prophecy. Just like Jeremiah had talked about the Medes conquering Babylon, this is what happened. And so he uses Darius the Mede to help the reader go, just like God had prophesied, this took place because uh, Cyrus was also the king of the Medes. And so he's connecting these dots for the reader. Now, um, the point for us is that Daniel now, there, there's a new person in, in charge, and this person uh, gives a promotion to Daniel and a few other leaders in the kingdom. Uh, they're called satraps, and a satrap is just basically like a governor. Think of a governor over a region that oversees a certain area, and so Daniel get, and, and a few others get a promotion uh, in this story, which is really cool, and uh, the interesting thing is that um, Daniel was so good at what he did that the king wanted to make Daniel the the number one leader of of all of the region. And this brought jealousy amongst the other satraps, the other leaders. So now there's jealousy involved. And and if you've worked in in corporate or in business before, if if you've been uh, promoted in business, there's probably been some people that were jealous. Or maybe you saw someone get promoted and you got jealous. This is normal in in kind of the workings uh, of people, but they get jealous. And 
And, um, and so they begin to, at this point, uh, form a cabal. Uh, this is a, a group of people that devise a plan to try to overthrow Daniel. And so they start working together to try to figure out how are we gonna get Daniel out of the way? And they can't find any fault with him. Daniel is just a good dude. He does a good job. Uh, and there's just nothing they can say against him. They can't find any fault. So they devise a plan to go to the king. And they tell the king, um, uh, basically, hey, um, why don't you make a rule that no one else can worship any other gods but our gods? And the king, what's interesting here, the king, uh, the new guy in town, doesn't really know Daniel. He likes Daniel a lot. And if you think about it, this king, if he, if he knew the God that Daniel served, he probably wouldn't have made the rule. To, to do this, but he really doesn't know. He's, he likes Daniel, but he doesn't know much about him, and so he's like, yeah, sure, let's make this, let's make this up, and uh, if anybody worships any other gods, uh, that's fine. Um, uh, uh, I mean, not fine, and uh, uh, they can only worship our gods, and, and so he makes this rule. Now, um, historically speaking, the Persians are an interesting um, uh, kingdom at this time. Uh, they're unlike any other kingdom before them. Uh, it goes, Assyrians were a major powerhouse, the Babylonians were a major powerhouse, and then the Persians came along. The Assyrians were brutal. They would go into a land and they would just take out everyone. I mean, the stories that, that, that are told about the Assyrians when they would conquer people, I can't tell those stories from the stage. It was absolutely the most brutal kind of conquest uh, that the known world had seen at that time. Um, they were just terrible. Uh, this is the, the, the people when, when Jonah is told to go uh, and, and prophesy, he's like, no way, I'm not going to do it. Because the Assyrians were so brutal to the, to the, uh, uh, to the Jewish people and, and anyone that they conquered. It, it just was a terrible, terrible things that they would do. The Babylonians took over from the Assyrians. And the Babylonians basically learned from the Assyrians. Like, oh yeah, this is good. They changed a few things. Instead of just going in and conquering everybody, um, the Babylonians would go in and conquer everyone. But they would take a group of people and bring them back to their own culture. And, in, and incorporate the best and the brightest. And they would leave behind behind the sick, the hurting, the poor, and to, for them to just die off or be conquered by other groups around them. Um, but they would take the best and the brightest and incorporate them into their culture, which is kind of the Daniel scenario that we get here. And it's three friends. Um, and so this is the Babylonians. They're super brutal in, in their conquest, um, but, they, but they would take some people back. Uh, when the Persians conquered, they did something that, that no other kingdom had done. Um, the Persians, they were the biggest and baddest army on the planet at this time. Their, their kingdom was the largest that any other kingdom, before, larger than any other kingdom around them. They just conquered like crazy. And this is what they would do. They would, uh, they would take their armies and they would march in, in uh, uh, outside the city and they just have these massive armies and they would show up and they would send a representative inside the, uh, the place they were about to conquer and that person would meet with the, the kings or whatever leaders they were and they, and they would tell them this. They would say, hey look, we're coming in. We're going to destroy you. Um, that's a lot of work. Now I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, that's a lot of work for us. All right. <laughs> and there, it was written. No, um, I'm paraphrasing. But he would go in and they would go in and say, hey, we're about to conquer you. Now, that's a lot of work. And um, but, so we'll make you a deal. Um, we'll let you keep your gods. We'll let you keep your culture. We'll let you do whatever, you know, you, you remain the same. You just have to. Um, be under our kingdom. You have to pay taxes to us, and if we go to war, you got to send some troops our way. Um, if you don't, we're just going to 
we're going to take over, and, and we're just going to wipe you off the planet. So not much of a deal, right? But that's what they did, would do. And so this is how the Persian Empire grew so rapidly was that there were so many um, um, places that they would conquer that they would just go, okay, yeah, yeah, sure. We get to keep worshiping our gods. We get to keep doing what we're doing. Uh, we'll just pay some taxes and, and we get to live, right? So, so they would just take over all, um, uh, all these lands uh, through that way. So when they go into Babylon, here, here's the thought, is that why didn't the Persians just wipe everyone out? Well, that, that's not how they did it. They would go in and go, we're, we're going to conquer you. <laughs> you know, you can either serve us or, or die. And, um, and so the, the Babylonians, and Daniel in particular, this is why he was allowed to live, and this is why he got promoted, uh, and is because they're like, hey, you keep doing your thing. And this is why the Persians let the, the Jews go back home. It's because they weren't interested in just wiping people out. They wanted people to serve their empire, not just kill them all, okay? And so this is why, you know, the king was like, yeah, you guys can go back. You just got to, you know, uh, uh, be mindful of our kingdom and, and be under the rule of our kingdom. So when we get to this, this part in the story where they're trying to overthrow, they're trying, the king makes a rule that you can't worship any other god but, um, but, but our gods, he really doesn't understand what's at play. The, the, the people that are uh, against Daniel do. They know that Daniel's a guy who prays to his God, who is faithful to his God. And, uh, and so what happens is that in Daniel uh, chapter 6, verse 10, is a pivotal moment in this story. Uh, probably the most important uh, point in the story. It says that Daniel, when he heard the decree, when he heard the law, he went back home, went upstairs to his room. He prayed three times just like he had always done. He went and he prayed, set his face towards Jerusalem, and he prayed, just like he had always done. So the story goes on, and now we're in a rock and a hard place. With uh, So Daniel remains steadfast. Then we're in a rock and a hard place now for the king, because the king likes Daniel. He was going to promote him to make him the number one, and now he finds out that, oh no, Daniel's doing, going against my law. And a king can't go back on his decree, because then that would make him look weak, so he has to do something with Daniel. He has to uh, uh, follow through with his um, decree. Now, he could have killed Daniel. He could have just done away with him, which would have been common. You disobeyed the king's orders. You know, you're not going to live anymore. But that's not what happens. He takes him and he throws him into a lion's den. Now, why does he throw him in a lion's den? Okay. Um, this isn't just an execution thing that's happening. This in the ancient world, to be thrown into a lion's den was a test. Because when in the ancient world, when you want to, to find out if, if the gods favor you or not, um, if you did something wrong and, and they wanted to find out, is the gods on your behalf or are they not? They would put you in a position where you like, maybe you would be um, uh, tied to a stake and, 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 and lit on fire. And if you survived the flames, the gods favored you, you know, and, and you would be, and you'd be, oh, okay, so then you were right. But if not, if you didn't survive it, well, then the gods didn't favor you, and, and of course, you're dead because they didn't favor you. And so there's this weird kind of cultural way to determine someone's worth in, in whatever situation. And so to be thrown into a lion's den is, to, is a test to say, if you survive this, the gods are with you. If you don't survive it, then the gods weren't with you. So it was a way for the king to actually, it was the best way he could do to save Daniel, 
okay? And, and so the idea here is that the king's not against Daniel in this story. Uh, we, when we find out the next morning, um, uh, we read the story the next morning, the king is running out to the, to the pit to see, is Daniel okay? Did he pass the test? And to his delight, he is. He survived it. And Daniel says, and he's like, how? And he says, well, the angels came and they shut the mouths of the, uh, of the, of the animals. And, and so they rescue, and he rescues and he pulls them up. And then this is the part of the story that you don't get in the children's books. Um, uh, the king immediately then takes the, the people that accused Daniel, throws them in, in the pit along with their, their wives and kids. Very brutal, right, story. Um, but, uh, and they don't survive. Uh, they don't pass the test. And so, and then at the end of the story here, uh, after the deliverance, um, you have uh, the king decreeing to all the land that, that, that Daniel's God is the one worthy of worship and praise. And so this is a chapter. Now, most of us spend all our time at that back end of the story, the, the part of the story where Daniel gets thrown into it. He prays, uh, he gets in trouble for it, he goes into the lion's den, and, and God rescues him, and, and we go, yay, see, uh, uh, see how God rescued him. And we use that, and, and, and that is true, right, on the surface. But the real hook in this story is uh, verse 10, which leads us to this question, when would you stop? When would you stop? Verse 10 reads like this. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. When we read the Bible, we often miss the, the, the fact that time moves very quickly. Uh, you can turn a page in decades can, can go by. Centuries can go by. Just in pages that you turn. Time is, is a weird thing because it just jumps so quickly. Um, when Daniel uh, was first, when we're first introduced to Daniel and he's taken into captivity, most scholars place his age to be around 15 to 17 years old. He was a teenager when he was taken into captivity in Babylon. By time the Persians conquered Babylon, Daniel would have been uh, between 65 and 70 years old. So in the course, if we were to go conservative, go from, from uh, 17 to, to 65, let's just say those are the ages, 17 to 65, conservative math here, that would have been 48 years. From chapter 1 to chap the end of chapter 5, 48 years have passed. Just that quickly, in a few chapters, 48 years years. And we learn that Daniel went, when the decree happened, he went and prayed. And the key statement here is just as he had always done. So if we were to do the math on this 48 years, three times a day, that would have been roughly uh, uh, what we have here, 48 years. That's roughly 576 months of praying, 576 months. Uh, depending on how many weeks you put in a calendar year, you're roughly talking, um, uh, let's see here, it would have been, well, 17,000 days and 51,000 roughly prayers in 48 years. 51,000 prayers that he offered. 51,000 prayers of God deliver us. 51,000 prayers of God rescue us. 51,000 prayers. When would you give up? 48 years praying the same thing. When would you give up? 
When would you start talking yourself out of it? A thousand prayers? Well, maybe God's not listening. Two thousand prayers? Five years? Ten years? Ah, maybe I got this wrong. Maybe God doesn't care. 51,000 prayers he had probably offered in the course of 48 years of living in captivity. He remained steadfast. He had cultivated over the course of 48 years a relationship with God that enabled him to pass the test. When we get to the lion's den, we don't, we don't recognize that the victory of the lion's den started in verse 10. And most likely when he was a teenager. And most likely when he was a boy before that being taught how to pray. The victory of the lion's den was because Daniel cultivated a relationship with God by being steadfast and faithful over and over and over Again, do you have a rhythm that cultivates a relationship with God? Just as he had always done. When, when God hears your prayers, is it only in times of distress, frustration, and sadness? Or do you have an ongoing, no matter what's happening around you? Daniel, here's the decree. He's like, oh, yeah, okay, I'm just Go pray. I always do. Like you do you, world, I'm going to remain steadfast. And it was that that enabled him to have the victory over the lion's den. Steadfastness. This is what Daniel was. Steadfast. Someone who remains resolute, no matter what, makes a decision, this is what I'm going to do. And that's not going to change no matter what happens around me, I will remain steadfast. This was Daniel. It's who he was. Someone who remained steadfast and faithfulness, cultivating a relationship three times a day, praying, praying. And the church modeled themselves in this same way. Let's talk about a church living in Babylon. Um, the reality is that the first, the first century church, the New Testament church, saw themselves as, as people living in Babylon. And over and over again, we get the writings of, of Paul and Peter and James uh, encouraging the church to remain steadfast while they are living in Babylon. And you see this very clearly in a writing from Peter called 1 Peter, towards the end of your New Testament, a short little letter that Peter writes to a group of Christians living at that time, central Turkey, which was a Roman-occupied region. And uh, he's trying to encourage them. And uh, Peter is in Rome at this time. And he writes a letter to these people to help encourage them to remain faithful, to remain steadfast. It's an amazing letter that you should read uh, uh, at some point this week to remind yourself of this story. But let me pull out a few verses here that stand out. Um, so he's trying to encourage them to remain steadfast uh, in the midst of living under Roman occupation, under great persecution uh, that, that they're experiencing. And he says things like this. Uh, verse one, he says, uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, Exiles scattered throughout the province of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. So he's already labeling right out of the gate. Uh, out of the gate, exiles. You see the word there. 
He goes on to say this, things like this, verse 17 in chapter one, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. So again, foreigners, exiles. Chapter two, verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. So now he combines the two words to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. So he's trying to encourage them. You got to be your exiles, your foreigners. But, but listen, be like Daniel character, right? That the, the, they tried to accuse Daniel and they couldn't find anything wrong with him. So they had to make up a law that would get him in trouble. So he's like, live such good lives that they actually look at your life, even though they accuse you of doing wrong on the day of God's visitation, they will praise him. Chapter four, verse 19. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is a remaining steadfast. In the midst of what you face, are you going to continue to do good? And then, I love this, chapter 5, verse 12, same letter. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. And then look at 13. She, who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son, Mark. Uh, it's just taught, son is a language, his dear friend, his close companion, Mark. Do you see there, though? He says, she who is in Babylon greets you. What is he talking about? Babylon doesn't exist at this point in the New Testament, right? This is, that, that, that story is long gone. Peter's in Rome, and he uses code to communicate to the Christians. Why? Why does he use Babylon? Because he sees the Roman Empire as an archetype of a sociological evil that they face. He calls them Babylon, and he couldn't say the church in Rome greets you because that would have ousted the Christians there and gotten them in trouble. So, so Peter's using code language to write them, and he calls the church in Rome Babylon, or the Roman Empire Babylon. Here we see Peter encouraging the Christians to be steadfast in the midst of Babylon. This is a result of life when we do this that at times places us in positions of success. Like Daniel, what was the first thing that happened when the new king took over? He got a promotion. And sometimes in life when you continue to do good, like Peter's encouraging us, you'll get promoted. Th good things may happen, but, but we also know in this story that sometimes you face a trial of a lion's den. Sometimes... Being faithful citizens of God's kingdom in the midst of a Babylon will lead to success, and sometimes it leads to lion's den. And your ability to navigate any of those waters is in verse 10 of chapter 6. Your ability to remain steadfast, doing what you've always done. Do you, have you cultivated an ongoing relationship with God that allows you to move through the trials and lion's dens of your own lives? That's the heart of what's happening in Daniel chapter 6. No matter where you find yourself, learn to follow Daniel's model. Cultivate and curate an ongoing, deepening relationship with God that goes beyond just showing up at church. Glad you're here. This is, this, 
This is not just once a week is not an ongoing cultivating relationship with God. Three times a day he prayed just as he had always done. What is your rhythm? What is your rhythm? Here's how I want to wrap it up this morning. We'll start with the question that I've been asking. Do you have a rhythm cultivating a relationship with God that enables you to not live in fear even when facing the trial of your own lion's den? What does that look like for you? What does it look like for your family? With your kids? With each other, spouses, and individually? What does it look like? Moms and dads, how are you modeling an ongoing relationship with God? Is your devotion time, you know, at early in the morning, where, which is fine, early in the morning, but no one sees it? Your kids need to see you reading your Bible. Your kids need to see you praying. Your spouse needs to see you praying, reading your Bible, growing and deepening in your faith. Um, What does that look like for you? So I want you to wrestle with that this week. And then the second thing I want us to wrestle with is, in what ways are you needing to remain steadfast in your faith? So maybe you have an ongoing rhythm deepening and cultivating more out of your faith. But are you steadfast? Are you, are, is this thing that you do only happening in times of trial and, and uh, you know, disappointment and sorrow? Is it something that happens only when bad things are happening around you? Or is it something that is just there as a daily part of your life? This is what I want us to wrestle with. And as we get ready for communion... I'm going to invite up our uh, volunteers that are going to help pass out. If you didn't grab communion on your way in, we have some uh, leaders that are going to make their way up and down the aisle. Just lift your hand and get their attention. And as we get ready to take communion, I want us to wrestle with this and be challenged by it and, and be able to answer that question. What does that look like? What does it look like for you to cultivate an ongoing relationship with God? Yep, and you all can walk back. If you, if you didn't, just raise your hand and, and they'll make their way back. And... But as we get ready for communion, let's just take a moment and reflect and pray and think, and then we'll come up together and wrap it all up. Let's take a moment and pray.